Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Ideas Center at the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Chris Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Shanti Kalethal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum. As democracies around the world contend with new forms of digital disinformation, many observers are looking ahead to the implications of deep fakes, computer-generated video and audio impersonations of real people. Advances in artificial intelligence are enabling ever more convincing synthetic video and audio. This, in effect, is content that seems quite authentic, but is in fact inauthentic. As barriers to the creation of deep fakes shrink, the opportunities for disseminating disinformation grows, with the potential effect of further deepening distrust in the information ecosystem. Here to discuss how best to understand and prepare for the potential impact of this emerging technology, we're pleased to welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, Sam Gregory, Program Director at Witness, for today's discussion on demystifying deepfakes. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm delighted to be here. So we've heard so much discussed about this idea of deepfakes, and finding an ironclad definition isn't so straightforward, it seems. Perhaps you could just tell our audience a little bit about how you define deepfakes and how they work. I think for most people, deepfakes summons up this idea of this full face swap. It's what we've seen with, you know, the Nicolas Cages and all those kind of celebrity ones. And the problem there is it doesn't cover for some of the other ways in which you can use artificial intelligence to create realistic simulations of just someone's lips or of a voice or combine those or of someone's movements. Um, so we have to be giving people a broader definition and so they can understand where the risk factors are beyond a face swap, which right now you can usually still see. And then the other side of it is there are areas of what we might call synthetic media, which is basically how the ability to edit audio and video has got easier by, by, by means of the same artificial intelligence technique. So the ability to, for example, remove an object in a video is much easier now if you want to, for example, tamper with a piece of video evidence. And it's part of the same genre of uh, advances in artificial intelligence, and I think we should think of it in the same light. And so, in a way, we're talking about uh, the authenticity of the content we're seeing in an age where things are moving so quickly in the digital sphere and where people are so overwhelmed with data and information. What are some of the things that we need to bear in mind as we start to grapple with um, the implications of deepfakes? So, so the first thing to know is we're not yet in the eye of the storm with deepfakes. And I think that's important because there's a lot of scaremongering. Um, when they've done surveys, people think they're surrounded by deepfakes already, and that's not true. Now, there was a report that just came out that showed that there are maybe 15,000 deepfakes out there in the public space, and 95% of them were non-consensual sexual images of women, of celebrities, uh, of ordinary people. And that is a real problem right now. But for the, for, for the majority of people, they're not encountering deepfakes on a, on a day-to-day basis. And uh, what, what's really important about that is we've now got the opportunity to say, how do we prepare better for this than maybe some of the other waves of misinformation and disinformation that are really washing over us now? And frankly, we didn't do that well in dealing with. 
Let me back it up a little bit. It seems as though deep fakes and this broader category of synthetic media is part of an overall disruption in the information space. And I think you've you've previously discussed different categories of disruption, including, for instance, reality edits, credible doppelgangers, news remixing, and plausible deniability. Do you think you might explain some of these categories and explain how deep fakes fit into them? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, the ways well, one of the things that's really important right now is to help communities who are most likely to be impacted by this tell us what the threats are. And it's what we've really been focused on over the last 18 months at, at Witness. Um, and so to do that, we've really been presenting people with potential scenarios and asking them also to think about how threats expand on what they encounter already. So, you know, reality edits, which is actually a phrase coined by, by um, a research called Aviva Vadia, is really looking at this question of adapting pieces of content in a way that is seamless um, and that might challenge their evidentiary value or their ability to show someone saying something um, in an untruthful way. I think the credible doppelganger idea is one that we've we've heard a lot about in the political sphere. So, right, people worry about you know someone impersonating a president or a senator. What we've heard in when we've done these threat modeling, and most recently we did a series actually in Brazil, listening to community activists and national level journalists, was they worried about how this would be used to expand the ways there are existing attacks using Photoshop and things like that against women activists and journalists. And they said, let's worry about that as much as about you know the senior politicians. It's the attack on the vulnerable people. Um, and then when we've talked to, to news journalists and we've organized a number of meetings alongside groups like the BBC and the Partnership on AI, they've pointed to existing problems they face around how in an era where you can easily share you know, a video in a closed messaging app like WhatsApp, that people swap the logos on, say, a piece of media or claim something you know, comes from an outlet. And you know, the, all these techniques start to facilitate those tools of manipulating the, you know, the, the indices of trust we have or the remaining indices of trust maybe like, you know, the logo of the BBC or um, or a similar national level news outlet. And so as we've started to look at this, I think it's really important to think about threats as an evolution um, of existing threats. You know, we shouldn't sort of create these sort of phantasms of things that are out there when in fact, you know, people who are facing threats already because of misinformation and disinformation as individuals or as organizations uh, already see how these can evolve and, and want to think about how they can try and solve or at least partially solve them now. And I think you've also talked about that it's not just um, face swapping or video manipulation, that there's a much broader range of tools, including audio as well and, and other ways of editing. Do you think you might talk about some of these, the, the tools that are available now as opposed to in the future? Yeah, so 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 part of the reason why deepfakes are, are not as widespread as perhaps people think they are is that at least over the last 18 months, you know, most of the requirement to create, you know, a deepfake, particularly a face swap is required, you know, engaging with, you know, open source um, code repositories. It's required quite a lot of training of your model to make it work well to create the fakes. Um, what we've been seeing in the last six months particularly is, is a speeding up of the process of creation. Um, and it's a speeding up on the technical side and it's a speeding up on the availability side. So what's happened on the technical side is um, we're seeing the ability to create these uh, face swaps, but also the ability to manipulate facial expressions that rely on less what we call training data, which is basically examples of URI that are fed into you know, the machine learning algorithm. Uh, we've also seen rapid advances in audio so it's getting easier to do audio. And then on the other side, we're starting to see this commoditized. So you can go to a website and someone will do it for you. We've started to see versions of this in apps, like you know, notoriously in the last few months, the app Zhao in China 
Um, and all of these are basically, you know, also the leap to mobile, which as we know is, is a huge accessibility opener uh, when it's an app or it's on mobile. On this same thread of thought, uh, one of the concerns that people have, and you see in the mainstream media discussion of this, is that the dissemination of the technology, the ability to develop these skills, is now going to be diffused to people who are sitting in their basements and can do this. So that's one part of this. But the other, presumably, is that states with enormous resources and the data at their disposal and the interest in doing these things will likewise be developing this. If we Look at the challenge from today's perspective. What concerns you more? Is it the the lone person sitting somewhere with their own computer pulling this together? Or is it the state with um, near limitless resources pursuing their own ends with this? I, I wish I could pick one. Um, but when we've talked to people about this, they, you know, they identify threats at both ends of the spectrum and threats that are both very individualized and also about volume. So maybe if we've got a dynamic which is individual to state act, we also have kind of like um, sort of a dynamic between very individual, like it really matters what a particular piece of content looks like versus let's just create lots of this and just pollute the information environment. It doesn't really matter about the quality of just pumping it out. And I think we should worry at both ends. Like clearly if we look at what's happening with gender-based violence towards women, the accessibility of tools to harass and bully will be used by individuals and it will be used by states. Um, and it'll be used for fraud, right, in the business world as well. But also when we talk to folks, they really emphasize they're concerned about the public sphere. When you talk to journalists, when you talk to civic activists, the concern that this will make the public sphere even more crowded with content that is not believable or is only partially believable, and it overwhelms both, obviously, this idea of public trust, but also the ability of journalists and fact-finders to do the verification um, at that level of scale. Um, and I think one key element in this sort of volume question, which I think we don't think about it that much with deep fakes now, is we tend to think of them as kind of like maybe artisanal. They're like these crafted objects that, you know, someone really spent a lot of time building. Well, they, they won't be. They'll be much easier to make at volume, to make subtle variants on them, much as at the moment you can do things like generate text. Um, and, and when you think of it in those terms, then then the, the worrisome factor of how this goes into a culture that's built around visual images, built around fast sharing and where we don't really have many cognitive barriers to understanding manipulation um, is, is troubling. And could be from either actor. It could be a malicious business actor. It could be an individual who's your neighbor. Or it could be a state actor. And at the outset of the discussion, you, you alluded to this challenge saying that we haven't been so good in setting the norms and the standards around much of the technology that's been diffused globally to date in its present form. And on previous uh, episodes of this podcast, we've had any number of discussions that have looked at aspects of this challenge. Given what you've seen so far, what do you feel would be most beneficial and important to enhance the likelihood that democratic and human rights norms start to find their way around this deep fake technology? Yeah, it's, it's going to be a really interesting balance of solutions. So I don't believe there's going to be one sort of technical silver bullet here. Um, and in fact, the histories of technical silver bullets often, I was going to say, they backfire. So, so I, I think we need to be very cautious. It's a really interesting moment where we need to ask what we need from platforms and we need from people who build the tools of this. Like, what do we want from Facebook? You know, they're going to be very well placed to detect deepfakes because they're going to see a range of them, similarly YouTube, Twitter. What do we want them to tell users in a way that is useful? And what do we want them to moderate? And what do we want them to take down? And that's a really important democratic conversation um, that does have to learn from the history of the last five years. And when I referred to previous problems of misinformation and disinformation, I was thinking of a place like Myanmar, 
where you know like the response of platforms was late and inadequate. Um, and so I think the platforms and people who build tools play a really critical role here. And how legislators make decisions about how to push them is going to be critical. And I think it's it's really important sitting here in D.C. to think about what the decisions taken on the Hill here or in Brussels, how they will impact globally. Um, so I'll give an example of that. A lot of people talk about kind of asking for kind of ways to to track the origins of pieces of video, right? Can we track and authenticate things and require people to watermark content? And it, and it sounds like a great solution, but then when you talk to someone who's a dissident or a human rights activist, and you say, well, you're gonna have to watermark and uh, authenticate your content at source in order to be trusted, they're like, I don't trust the government here. I don't trust uh, Facebook. Um, so we have to be really careful as we think of solutions that, that try and preserve the integrity of information that we don't end up with ones that will backfire. And just on that um, sort of strand of thinking about technical solutions, there have been a lot of technology-based solutions, blockchain and so on proposed. But I know you've spoken about other ways of getting at pieces of the puzzle, maybe not the solution. So what are the other parts of that puzzle that need to be filled out, the social parts and cultural and so on? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of the technical solutions need to plug into us thinking about where we need to be resilient. Um, and so what I mean by that is, you know, in, in f two years' time, it may be very hard to the naked eye for an ordinary person or a journalist to spot this kind of manipulation. We already know it's very hard for, say, lip sync manipulation. So we can't just tell people, you've got to just look really hard. It's just not fair. Um, so, you know, the technical signals that, for example, a Facebook will see or a Google are really important. They have to be embedded in us thinking about how journalists and fact checkers are prepared for this. You know, what is their skills for doing even media forensics, which isn't a particularly widespread skill amongst journalism. Um, how are we talking to ordinary people about this, you know, people who consume this content? And I, I do think the solution there does go back to media literacy, and that's an overused phrase, but it's it's true, right? It's media literacy that thinks about where things come from, um, who shared them to you, that is informed by technical signals is a really important part of this. And again, I think platforms have a part to play in this. They can be telling people what they see, not telling them categorically, you shouldn't believe this, or you should understand this content in this way, but there's manipulation here, you need to understand that. Um, and then, you know, there are going to need to be legislative responses, particularly to very immediate harms. Um, I think, you know, one of the areas that people raise in relation to gender-based violence is the harm is done by the time it's out there. Um, you know, once someone shares an image of you, it doesn't need to be a perfect image to, to create that harm. Um, there's no pulling it back. Um, so how we think about giving people um, a better safety net around that by, by criminalizing that type of conduct, I think there are steps we can be taking in, in the legal venue there. Is this something, you know, you've brought up the idea that, um, you know, human rights activists, gender activists, or women generally could be targeted by this. And I'm thinking particularly of, for instance, activists either within repressive regimes or, or those that are working to try to get news of human rights abuses out into the public. They'll be targeted with this. And the the actors that are seeking to target them will not be bound by any legislative framework. So what, what do we do about that problem when the people that are the most vulnerable to this kind of attack are also perhaps not protected by some of these other measures we might devise? And, and fundamentally, this is, this is the problem, right? It's an asymmetric um, conflict. And so it's, you know, if we think of it in the context of many of the tactics that are happening now of doxing, of harassment, of these kind of cascades of false information, Activists are at a disadvantage and civic defenders, and I, w I wish I had a good answer for how we protect ourselves in this. Um, 
you know, I do think tr trying to work out how we reduce the scope of harm. So, for example, you know, making it harder to do this uh, in a way that's untrackable, making it um, um, criminalizing certain edge cases so that at least in places where you have law, you can address it. Um, but I, but I'm honest, like it's, it's something we've been wrestling with within Witness. Like we don't know how to deal with it um, once this gets scaled. Um, towards the most vulnerable in places that are um, that don't have rule of law. And, and that's why I also go to that we need to think about solutions that don't actually just make it worse. So if we put requirements on those people to create signals of trust about their own content at the same time as they're being attacked by people who have no consideration for those issues, we're really creating further perpetuating this asymmetry. You mentioned this issue of media forensics. And I have an idea of what you're alluding to, but I'm wondering if you just say a little bit more about what What's really needed, given where the technology is now and where it's heading, to be able to do um, the sort of media forensics you've alluded to? So, so media forensics is this idea that we can, you know, identify manipulations in an image, essentially. And it's, you know, it's a relatively new field. It's primarily in law enforcement. Um, and, and a lot of it is, is behind some of the ways we detect deepfakes. There are a number of ways to detect deepfakes, some of which are very grounded in media forensics, some of which are grounded in using the same techniques you use to create a deepfake to detect them, you know, essentially training an algorithm to do detection in the same way you trained an algorithm to, to create the deepfakes. Um, I don't think this means that we need to uh, train every journalist to be you know, an FBI media forensics person. It's impractical. Uh, we do need to think, do they have the tools available to them and the training that they can do the type of diagnosis of an image that could quickly reveal flaws or information in it that they need to know. Um, at the moment, there's just not that capacity. There's a big gap between the tools available and the capacity of journalists. And again, it also goes back to, to what platforms do. And again, I want to push responsibility to companies like Facebook and Google and YouTube. You know, when we've done workshops with journalists, bringing them together with deepfakes, forensics researchers, one of the key things the journalists say is, yes, we're worried about deepfakes, but we still can't do a reverse video search in YouTube to find if a video was shared from one situation and is being recontextualized in another. So we need to not, in our lure towards this new problem, forget that there are massive existing problems that could be solved around you know, so-called shallow fakes and existing mis- and disinformation. So we, we can't let the platforms off the hook on those either. It just seems widening the lens on this idea that more generally when we talk about the development and the acceleration of artificial intelligence beyond the subject of deep fakes, that much of the expertise is found either in the military or security sphere or in the commercial development sphere. And in terms of building democratic and human rights norms around these emerging technologies, seems to be a lot of um, open space at the moment. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think there's 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 open space and there's um, there's always going to be a pattern of neglect of of voices who are marginalized or human rights voices, and so that's just power. So if there's you know we need to recognize that's in the AI field as in other spaces. Uh, it's been why we've explicitly said you have to center you know voices from the global south, people who are marginalized already in the solutions. Otherwise, we'll just repeat solving for people in power which is good. Like, I want to make sure we don't have deep fakes of politicians and we disrupt the U.S. electoral process, of course. But I want to make sure we don't make that the only focus. And we do think globally. Um, I think there are some initiatives, you know, and I'll, I'll speak from, from personal experience. I spent the last year um, co-chairing an expert group in something called the Partnership on AI, where 
I've seen receptivity to really trying to think how in some of these new AI developments, particularly in this area of synthetic media, we really try and think outside of it. This is purely a technical question because that's often how it gets framed. And it's, you know, if we look at the history of AI, it's it's clearly excluded and harmed people uh, when it's been framed that way because it's claimed it's neutral when we know that, um, you know, it contains bias, it contains discrimination for a whole range of reasons from how it's designed to the data. And just, you know, you kind of mentioned something like a reverse image video search. And are there other pieces of low-hanging fruit that this community should be looking for to try to tackle first? I know you've mentioned that. You've looked, you've talked about, um, I think, trying to run threat modeling for stakeholders like journalists and human rights defenders. Like, what, would that, what would that look like? I, I think the dialogue has only just begun on how to make sure that we're, we're responding to the right threats and then building tools and solutions around them. So I think we do need to continue to listen to people about threats. In our own work at Witness, we've also said that in some ways the solution discussion is outrunning the threat discussion. So people are building tech infrastructure to respond to deep fakes when it's still not a massively scaled problem. And so it's equally important actually to be talking to communities and we we are doing convening work in Southern Africa and in Southeast Asia in the coming months and say, these are the solutions people are proposing. Are these actually the solutions that you want? Because otherwise they'll get set in in stone. You know, and there's, you know, it's a well-known sort of truism of technology that, you know, your opportunity to influence radically diminishes once the infrastructure is built, particularly if you're outside of, of the power structure. So I think there's making sure that people are part of solutions is key. Um, and then there's making sure that the technical solutions don't become completely determinative, right? So we want detection more available, but we don't want detection on a technical basis to determine what is true and false, right? Just because I can detect a deep fake doesn't tell me whether it's satire or parody or um, subversive you know, comedy attacking you know, someone who is in power, um, all of which we probably want to protect on a global scale. And similarly, if I come up with a solution that proves where a piece of content is, um, as I mentioned, I think we exclude people quite quickly on that who make choices around privacy or don't use the latest tools or are worried about surveillance. But on the other hand, actually, a lot of people want those tools as a choice. They want to have a choice to you know, make their material more evidentiary, give it signals of trust. We just have to make sure that infrastructure choices don't become obligations, that these technical choices give people tools, but they don't force them into, um, into tracks that will actually be fundamentally potentially quite damaging for them and dangerous for them. And I guess I just have a final thought, which is, and it relates to, I think, themes that have come up here and that you've written about as well, which is, are we making things worse just by having a conversation about deepfakes? And is it possible to actually really grapple with the real potential for harm done by these technologies while at the same time not scaring the pants off everybody and making them feel like there's nothing we can do? Yeah, there are two extremes to this conversation, and both frustrate me. One is it's the end of truth, and you're surrounded by deepfakes. And that's not true, and it's so counterproductive because it plays into the rhetoric. It plays into, you know, this is the latest version of it. it's fake news for people in power to use to dismiss um, content. Um, and so we have to push back against that. And I, I don't think having a conversation, I think actually having a conversation that's about, well, where is this at? Where do real people think the threats are going to evolve? What do real people want as solutions? Bearing in mind what they already face is really important. The other end of the conversation and it's, um, is, oh, this is overblown, this is only a problem for women in gender-based violence. It's unfortunate and horrible that it's already a problem for women in gender-based violence. That doesn't tell us that it won't evolve in other ways. And, and for us and for, for the work we've been doing at Witness, it's critical to say we're actually in this kind of window to do things in a way that is more effective, that's listening, versus reactive mode, when everyone's going to shut down around this once we have a high-profile deepfake or a wave of content that starts to attack public trust. 
Now, none of this is easy. Like when, when we did the Brazil work and uh, one of the favela-based activists who we worked with said, look, you know, I already have a challenge talking about fake news with the people I work with. How do I talk about this? And I think there we have to be really careful. We have to not, you know, add this as another sort of nameless threat. We have to name it. We have to show people what it looks like. We have to explain how widespread it is. Um, and we have to place it in context. And I think that's always important. Like whenever we talk about deep fakes, but don't say this is in the context of misinformation and disinformation in the context of gender-based violence right now, then we turn it into this object that scares people. And if we put it in that wider context, if we were to turn the clock back 10 years and even look at the social media space, um, setting aside the particular issue of deep fakes, I think people would be um, would have been stunned at that time to see how the disinformation question would have suffused the environment. And frankly, if we could turn back the clock, we might have done some things differently in terms of norm setting and otherwise um, having more standards around the, um, the entire conversation. Yeah, and, and we might have, you know, you know, tried to think a little more about how some of the aspects of the infrastructure we built got weaponized against us, right? You know, the reason deep fakes will spread is because they'll, you know, they'll be recommended on YouTube, they'll share in a, a closed messaging app, they'll be easily forwarded. So all of those kind of affordances of the tech infrastructure, this is why we have to sort of place this also in how we think about platforms and, and what they do, because that those are the spaces these will be shared in. So before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. Shanti, what are you reading? Well, I am reading the Global Disinformation Order, uh, the 2019 Global Inventory of Organized Social Media Manipulation by Samantha Bradshaw and Phil Howard of Oxford University. This is the third iteration of this report, which looks at global trends in computational propaganda, which they define as the use of algorithms, automation, and big data to shape public life. So in this report, they found evidence of organized social media manipulation campaigns, which have taken place in 70 countries, which is up from 48 last year and 28 the year before. And they also note that social media has become co-opted by many authoritarian regimes who use computational propaganda now in three distinct ways, to suppress fundamental human rights, to discredit political opponents, and to drown out dissenting opinions. And they also explain that China has actually become a major global player in this space now, alongside a host of other several um, sophisticated state actors, including Iran, Pakistan, India, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela. So there's a lot in this report, a lot to dig into, and I would really recommend um, sort of going through it. There's, there's some rich insights. Great. Sam, what are you reading? Um, so so I, I'm deep in deep fakes world at the moment. So I've, I've been reading an excellent report that um, came out of something called Deep Trace Lab um, that kind of looks at the state of play on, on deep fakes and, and identifies that figure I mentioned earlier that 96% of deep fakes are non-consensual sexual images. It also points to some of the cases we've seen in, in politics that are about people using the kind of it's a deep fake excuse to claim something that might be true isn't true. Um, you know, this what has been described by Daniel Citron and Robert Chesney as the kind of liar's dividend. You can now call something a fake, um, even if it's true. Um, and Deep Trace Labs is also, they produce a weekly newsletter called Tracer, which is a, a great resource that I follow each week on, on some of the developments in this world. Great. Thanks for that. And for my part, I'm reading a report produced by the Global Disinformation Index titled The Quarter Billion Dollar Question, How is Disinformation Gaming Ad Tech? And this examines how programmatic advertising constitutes a significant part of the digital media world, accounting for what they estimate is about $90 billion a year. It's within that context that some ads end up on domains that are known for uh, disinforming. 
And the Global Disinformation Index estimates that an advertising amount worth about 235 million U.S. dollars ends up on disinformation sites like RT and Sputnik. They say that this is a, an industry-wide problem that requires an industry-wide solution on the part of ad exchanges and brands, and they offer a few um, ideas on how to address this. One is um, enhanced transparency about where ad exchanges and brands are placing their advertisements. Another suggestion is to get real-time updates of disinformation domains and that there's a need to find a way to automatically classify domains containing disinformation. And then finally, they suggest targeting ad spends directly on quality news domains. I think all thoughtful suggestions. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today, even though I'm sure we could learn a lot from continuing this conversation for another hour or so. But um, Sam, will let you go here. And thank you so much for being a guest today. Thanks for having me on. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, we recommend reading Sam Gregory's two-part piece for Witness, the first of which is titled Deep Fakes and Synthetic Media, What Should We Fear, What Can We Do?, which is based on recommendations for a June 2018 expert convening on the subject. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust, with research support for this episode by Dean Jackson. I'm Shanti Kalepo with Christopher Walker and Sam Gregory. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on demystifying deepfakes and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.